Uh, what did you have for breakfast today? Uh, I had an eggs Florentine. Eggs Florentine? Yeah. Which Love I forgot the, I forgot the difference between Florentine and um, Benedict. Benedict yeah. is ham. Florentine is salmon. Yeah. I was like, well, the thing is about the Florentine was there was no salmon, oddly enough, on the Florentine. Huh. You had spinach. Apparently spinach. Oh, no, no, no. It is spinach. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. You. I, this is funny. I used to work at... Um, <laughs> A cafe called Cafe Florentine, and we used to have eggs. Florentine was like our thing, but you could add salmon because everyone just asked to add salmon with yeah. it. So, yeah, I forgot about the definition, and uh, the, <laughs> uh, the waitress uh, clarified with me, and I kind of missed it. And I said, "Yep," yeah. and then I got it. I was like, "Okay, I'll, I mean, I've still, still eat it." Love it. But, it's yeah. a breakfast of champions. This podcast is brought to you by Neural Media. Neural Media is an effortless and affordable content production service. We help businesses save time and money by taking away the pain of producing content. If you want to grow your audience through content production, head to neural.com slash media. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E dot com slash media. Create a quote and request a callback from me personally. If you want to learn more about the benefits of growing your audience, download our free series on how to create content at the bottom of neural.com slash media. Listeners to this podcast receive a special 10% discount by using the promo code UNCOMMON. Welcome to Uncommon, the podcast that helps you build your knowledge, skills, and mindset through interviews with unique individuals. My name is Jordan Michaelides, and I'm your host. In this episode, I have for you Jack Chendo Chen. Jack is a full stack developer and co-founder of Assembly4. Now, Assembly4 is the company that makes products and services to empower sex workers throughout the world, committing a portion of profits to those in need. And you may remember our prior interview with co-founder Lola Hunt. Assembly 4 rocketed to the forefront of the industry with the launch of Swidder as legislation known as Foster and Sesta effectively banned sex workers from safely engaging their clients online. Swidder was the beginning of Assembly 4's modern tech disruption to an industry that globally is worth about 186 US billion dollars and historically is not too tech savvy as well. The launch of further services in Trist for advertising and Honey Notes, a CRM, underscores Assembly 4's commitment to the industry. Our chat with Jack gave us the perfect opportunity to dig deeper to the tech side of Assembly 4, including product development while also delving into what it takes to become a true full-stack developer. This is a fascinating episode for anyone interested in software development and our previous chat with Lola on Assembly 4, where we covered in this episode where the nickname for Chendo came from, high-performance Mario Kart, bouldering, his background in tech, programming explained, home automation, and including his work at LifeX, which I'm a big fan of, uh, early days of Swidder, and of course, Assembly 4. So, 
as I said, if you enjoyed our previous chat with Lola Hunt and you want to go deeper on the tech behind Assembly 4 and learn a little bit more about what it takes to be a full stack dev, then this would be very enjoyable. If you've got a friend who would like that, do share it with them or consider subscribing on your podcast app. If you've got or you want to look at the show notes rather, just head to neural.com slash podcast. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you want something similar, go check out Matt Allen's episode, which is episode 18, another developer who has got into the tech and VC side of things. But as I say each week, thank you so much for listening. Our regulars, for coming back, our newbies, for giving us a shot. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Jack Chendo Chen. Jack or Chendo, what do you prefer? Um, I think people mostly know, uh, know me as Chendo, so Chendo works. Yeah, yeah. I like this nickname. Uh, I somehow found it on... Um, you mu- you tweeted about it recently. Yeah. So people used to call you Ninchendo. Yeah. So uh, and then that you was just shortened it. Yeah, that was uh, all the way back in grade five. So when I was ten, uh, yeah, someone called me Ninchendo one day. Okay. And then I don't I can't remember how long that stuck for. But then, uh, as with uh, all Australian nicknames, it has to be two syllables. So then someone dropped the nin. Yeah. And uh, yep, I became Chendo. Chendo. There yeah. you go. What was your favorite Nintendo game? Ooh, that's a rough one. Um, I wasn't prepared for this. <laughs> um, I guess, I, mean, I think it changed throughout the years, but uh, from my childhood, it would have been Super Smash Brothers. Okay. Yep. Right. I was always, uh, I loved Zelda. Yeah. I loved it so much that, uh, yeah, I remember me and my brother, we bought, there was a book back then. This would have been like late 90s, maybe early 2000s. And you buy a book and it's not like it's got all the cheats, but it's got like hints yeah. about finding things. And uh, I loved reading that book. It was in this really tacky, like sort of glossy finish paper. It was like a 200 page book or whatever. 200 pages. It's massive. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like honestly though, I've only barely played Zelda. Really? Yeah. Like my my longest session with Zelda was, uh, uh, was on a Singapore Air flight back when they somehow they had the uh, SNES emulator in the in-flight entertainment system. Ah, okay. That was the longest I've played Zelda. Wow. Yeah, it's it's amazing how big that game was back. Like that was the game. That and um, Mario Kart. Mario Kart. Mario Kart. Everyone can. I know you. Uh, you had an interesting piece on Mario Kart <laughs> at uh, the Ruby Australia conference. I think it was. Yeah. No, it was. You got when you were working at Up. You yeah. had. Uh, I can't remember what it was. Something, something to do with uh, computer vision or something like that, and it was tracking yeah. what you guys were doing. So the uh, it was pretty intense. Um, uh, Mike Morris, um, he kind of like just randomly announced, like dropped it during um our Friday retro. It was like it was uh during the session where we would show off uh what we like the cool stuff we did, and turns out he's been working on a thing called Cutalytics, right? Okay. Which would um it would analyze the video from the from the Nintendo Switch and then using Ruby and like uh, some image like diffing libraries uh, was able to extract stuff like uh, the the position that players were in, uh, the score 
and automatically fed it to the leaderboard system that will track, you know, who's good or who's bad at Mario Kart. <laughs> and uh, my contribution to that was I added item uh, item detection. Okay. So it'll tell you who had uh, which item when, which was it, which uh. it made it very interesting, right? Because because uh, sometimes you swear like you always get like the crappy items, or this person always gets the good items. But we we now had proof in the data. Really? Yeah. So tell us. I mean, I know I'm gonna, definitely going to link this because there was a video on this where you guys yeah. presented it. Uh, yeah, Mike presented at uh, RubyConf Australia last year. Yeah. Uh, so that's on YouTube, and they only published that a couple of days ago. So. Okay. And what was what was like the definitive answer? Do you do better on certain characters or certain places? Or well, so we uh, we had um, rules about playing Mario Kart. You could only be Yoshi, so everyone had the same setup. Okay. There was no. Uh, it was a. Uh, uh, it was Yoshi, and it was the first. Um, effectively, because uh, in the new Mario Kart, you can pick the cart, you can pick the flying thingy, um, yeah. and you can pick the wheels. It was the first in every category. So everyone had this, like, there were no excuses on who had better what. It was all the same character. Okay. And what did you discover? Uh, I mean, ter- uh, I only made it to what we call A-League, which is the top four players. About, uh, I-, I made it there once and that was it. But otherwise, I'm not sure like what we discovered. <laughs> um, but we discovered that yeah, we took Mario Kart pretty seriously. Wow, I, I did uh, like initially looking that, and I'm going to link it for everyone so they can have a look. It was uh, quite funny to watch. It was a <laughs> a different topic at uh, at RubyCon <laughs> for sure. Now, um, question from uh, Zoe that she had is why bouldering and why do so many developers do bouldering? Um, I mean, I mean, I can't speak for all developers, but yeah, I do def- uh, notice a, uh, I, I do notice a lot of like, I guess, a tech shirts. Um, I mean, for me, it's, um, it's mental and physical. Like, uh, when you're on the wall, you have to kind of figure out how to, uh, make your body do the thing to get to the top. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I, I mean, I've always found it like the gym boring. Because like mentally, it doesn't do anything for me. Previously, like in, in, in high school days, most of my exercise was Dance Dance Revolution. <laughs> like I spent a lot of time at the arcade. Wow. Um, and like, even though that was, uh, it's not really that mental because eventually your brain just develops this um, pattern recognition where you could see the sequence of steps coming up and your body is already planning ahead for you. Like, you know, balance, positioning, where your feet has to be, the rhythm. Eventually, it's like the, um, you had the Tetris effect where uh, I would see arrows when I close my eyes, which is, <laughs> yeah, pretty uh It just becomes like a sort of flow state. Yeah, it, it, it is a flow state and it's like a satisfying flow state because uh, you had, it objectively told you how well you were doing, right? Okay. Which is uh, uh, not something a lot of things can tell you. Mm. So it was like a definite measure of improvement, which is uh, good for learning anything that you want to figure out if you're getting better or worse because uh, decreasing that feedback loop, um, I think, improves learning speed. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, back to uh, back to <laughs> bouldering. Uh, yeah, it's it, I love it because, yeah, it's um, uh, physical, mental, and social, mm. like all things together. So you think maybe... Maybe why developers like it is because 
statistically on average because it's such a challenging job and they love the mental aspect of coding yeah that they want to be challenged mentally as well as physically when they're exercising yeah i think so um i think it's also probably similar i mean i assume a good a bunch of uh engineers also play video games because it's the same kind of thing where i mean a game has rules and often it's about figuring out ways to optimize to solve whatever the problem there is in the game or or in programming it's the same kind of thing um (laughs) at least that's the way i see it yeah i I think i'd agree with that um she's been trying to get me to start uh bouldering i will soon (laughs) you should do it it's good fun (laughs) yeah i'm uh, i'm torn between that and uh going back to doing mixed not mixed martial arts but bjj in particular yeah i find um wrestling is is uh particularly that style of wrestling is really challenging um now i went through and uh like with every guest i like to look at their profile and all that sort of stuff i mean you've got a pretty fascinating profile i think uh very high caliber career in the space i think you started at qt you've worked at a few household names in the startup space like lifex and mm-hmm. bardo um spoken at a few conferences like ruby australia I know you've declared yourself as a tinkerer and a gadget enthusiast. Yes. I'm curious as to what is your earliest memory of of loving computers? Um, I think the moment it clicked for me that I liked computers was when I was nine. Okay. I think I found a book on writing Quick Basic. Cause, okay, so background was like uh, no one else in my family did computer stuff, but we had one. And I somehow figured out how to write a program. And I distinctly remember my first program being, uh, it, it would ask for your name. Okay. And if it was Jack, because this is pre-Chendo, um, it would say, you rock, and then exit. <laughs> if it was anything else, it would say, you suck, and then loop forever. <laughs> and at that time, I didn't know how to stop the program from running. So the only way to exit was to restart the computer. And I I remember making my sister use a program and it's saying, you suck on loop. And I just laughed at her. And I was like, <laughs> programs are great. I'm going to become a programmer. And then here I am. Is your sister older or younger? Younger. Okay. That's so funny. Yeah. I, I mean, love, very basic, but. <laughs> yeah. I love all those, um, all that sort of fun that you have. I think my earliest memory with the computer was uh, my uncle had one and he had PGA Golf on it. Because <laughs> I loved games and I yeah. just played that and I thought it was the weirdest thing ever. I tried going, I couldn't go on the internet back then because you had to use dial up. Yep. But uh, yeah, those are the days of dial up. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> dial up days. I, I also remember trying to uh, send an email to Nickelodeon. Okay. But I had no idea how. And I just remember just trying to type email addresses into the DOS prompt and getting nowhere. Wow. Um, but. I mean, I don't know why I was trying to send an email anyway, but that was a long time ago. Where where did it go from there? Like you started with that program. Where did the experimentation go? Um, so so uh, I was very lucky in, I guess, grade five. Uh, so we had a computer class and they had this uh, program called Microworlds, which is effectively uh, Logo. Uh, so you have a total and you... You can make the turtle move around. You can make the turtle draw things. But the cool thing about Microworld is because uh, you can also attach sprites to the turtle and make it animate. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, initially, we were taught like very basic stuff, right? But um, I had a friend um, who I think now works for Google. Oh, sorry, uh, DeepMind. And, oh, wow. Okay. And uh, we, I mean, all, all we did was... Like a we, high school friend. Yeah, high school friend. Wow. Um, and we we read, we just read the manual and started just making more and more complicated things. And uh, uh, my teacher, um, Mr. Wilkes, actually, <laughs> I don't remember his name, um, let us have way more periods in the computer room than we should have. And okay. from there, it just kind of kept developing. I remember I had a website back, yeah, back at that point. And I wish it was still up now, but it had like the... Uh, the under construction gifts. I figured out how to embed uh, a MIDI track into the website. <laughs> um, and I remember telling people to go to it during class. And um, this is back when volume control didn't exist. wasn't really a thing. So you had um, 20 slightly overlapping instances of the Belly Hills Cop theme <laughs> playing at maximum volume during class until teachers had told everyone to stop. Wow. Yeah, it's so fascinating thinking back to that teacher. Who, who was the teacher's name? Mr. Wilkes? Mr. Wilkes, yeah. And just thinking about those teachers you had in your life that sort of recognized your aptitudes and yep. really reinforced it. Oh, I, like he was key um, because he also, so he, he recognized that um, we were good at it, right? And he organized for us to go uh, to be uh, taught slash coached by uh, the top grade 12 student. Wow. And so uh, Friday afternoons, we would go up to uh, all the way to the uh, the high school end of, of campus, I guess. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, like uh, he'd give us exercises to do. Yeah. And we just kind of uh, developed from there. Yeah. Who, what school did you go to? Did you go to school in Victoria? No, I, I went to school in, uh, in Queensland. So uh, Brisbane. That's right. Yeah. That's what I was saying. Yeah. QU2. QUT, QUT, sorry. QUT, yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, Oh, that's so fascinating. So you got taught by that year 12 student and over time you just sort of did your own stuff. Yeah. And I mean, you already knew by the end of year 12 that this is what I want to do. Yeah. I mean, I would say it probably, I knew knew before that because uh, it was pretty much my core hobby and um, uh, I started doing more with, uh, I guess, websites and web tech in general. I joined a um, manga scan, uh, translation group. Okay. At like when I was twelve, at one point, um, and this is the cartoons for those listening. Yeah, the yeah. Uh, the uh, the, uh, the manga, right? So, uh, I, I was just, I was initially doing uh, like editing, like kind of photoshopping the uh, the Japanese characters out and then putting the English in. But it turns out I sucked at that, <laughs> and eventually I just uh, built the website for it. And uh, it was, I think I would say it was pretty advanced for its time. Um, it had. This is before, you know, Ajax was a thing, right? So we had, um, you can look at the site, you can click edit and it would tr- it would transform that part of the page into a field which you can live save and live update. Like I kind of invented my own way of to do <laughs> dynamic things before Ajax was a thing, which was kind of cool. Um, and then did some stuff with a, uh, a game translation group, built some tools for that. And yeah, just kind of made... Played around. Yeah, did a lot of playing around. Yeah, basically built out your toolkit in a way. Yeah, um, and it was super fun, like, at least back then and even now, right? Being able to write code, like, write something that you can share with the world uh, with minimal effort mm-hmm. um, was amazing. Yeah, it's um, it, it's amazing to me, and I, I sort of regret 
it's always so easy to say that in hindsight, but I regret not doing computer science at university. Like I, I did commerce and I just wish that I had been able to do like a double degree in commerce and engineering because I'd always been good at those sort of economics, politics, accounting, all that sort of stuff. But I loved computers, like particularly computer games. Yeah. And it's so funny. I got out and, you know, spending a few years in finance, the things that I was doing on the side was like teaching myself to code with stuff like, um, God, I can't remember the name of it, something tree. There's Code Academy, Something Tree. I can't. I just blank on the name right now. Um, tree. Something Tree. Um, I know it's owned by Chamath Palahapitai, who's like my favorite VC fund manager. But the point is, like, you can get all these, you know, free sort of online coding uh, programs. So I taught myself the general structures of like Ruby and Python, mm-hmm. which has come in handy for managing our own website. I don't need a product manager because I know generally structurally how things are done, how you mock things up, etc. And I can just manage it with a programmer. So it's been very useful, but I do wish, I do wish with the amount of money we spend on uh, code that we had, that I had that, that direct skill set. Yeah. It's tough. I'm curious, when you were growing up, how did your parents sort of encourage this sort of stuff? Oh, probably. (laughs) I mean, encourage is not the word I'd use, right? It's like, I spend a lot of time on the computer. Yeah. Were they screaming at you to get off the computer? Oh, uh, yeah. That, like, oh, probably not screaming, but, uh, I mean, I mean, there was a whole, you know, was it uh, university? I started playing World of Warcraft, which, you know, sinks a lot of time uh, in. And, you know, I get yelled at, but uh, I think they eventually recognized I was pretty good at it. So they kind of let me be. But mm-hmm. it was a little bit of an uphill battle. At most parts. Yeah, I think yeah. Um, me and my brother, my brother did his undergrad in maths and now he's doing his master's in uh, software. Yeah. And uh, I vividly remember we were probably, it's so funny because our parents would give us these games and then like a year in, they'd take it off us because they were so frustrated that we weren't going outside and doing stuff when we were already doing that anyway. But yeah. I remember we first got Game Boys and then our parents rationed time to using the Game Boys. Yeah. And then when we had the Nintendo, there was a, a period where it was almost a year where my dad took the Nintendo to work because my brother spent so much time on it. He wouldn't do anything else. Yeah. So that that's sort of, and it's so funny now because, you know, they come back to you and they're like, oh, can you fix this problem on my computer? Yeah. You're like, well, look at it. <laughs> look who's asking the for help now. Yeah. now. Right. Yeah. Is there a particular lesson as you were growing up that you learnt from your parents, maybe indirectly or directly that influenced you today, like a principle of some kind? Like, for example, with my parents, I, for me, it was hard work because uh, my dad would just constantly, constantly work. There was a period of time, now in hindsight, I was too young to know, but he basically nearly went bankrupt for this business he had with my uncle and got himself out of that through slogging away for like, 16, 18 hour days for three years, which I only learned recently. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, I don't, I can't, I don't think so. Uh, I think I just spent like too much time on the computer and my memory <laughs> of my childhood is, I guess, sporadic at best. Well, let me put this to yeah. you then. What aspect of your parents do you see in yourself? It's saying that everyone hates to admit, but um, it's so true. Honestly, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. This is where we need your sister. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I spent more of the time just like, uh, I guess, 
socializing on the internet more than anything. Like yeah. uh, I distinctly remember back in the days, um, I'd be on uh, IRC a lot. Okay. Like back when it was cool, I guess, if it was ever such a point. Um, I, I remember uh, there's a couple of channels I distinctly remember. And uh, this was on uh, Dalnet for the people out there that remember Dalnet. Uh, back when it was like the biggest network and then it kind of died then. Uh, I was in the scripting channel. Actually, I forgot about this completely. Uh, I, I did a lot of... Um, uh, so there's an IRC client called MIRC. Okay. And that was like the de facto way you used IRC, right? And it had a pretty powerful scripting kind of engine built into it, which you could effectively customize every aspect of it, right? Bots, blah, blah, blah. And um, I was in a, a, uh, a channel um, where we would kind of help out people who wanted help, right? And it was from there I met like a couple of people that I eventually met in real life. I even went to one of their weddings. Um, and uh, it was, yeah, really interesting being able to uh, meet and interact with people from all around the world. Yeah. I mean, I was 12 at the point, so talking to strangers on internet, <laughs> bad thing, blah, blah, blah. But, yeah. Well, for, for the audience who may be a bit more lay with this computer side of things, what is IRC? Uh, so IRC stands for Internet Relay Chat, and yeah. it's effectively chat rooms. Um, yeah, it's effectively like chat rooms, but like very old school. Uh, yeah. And, and you'd run like a, a program on your computer to chat with people yeah. as opposed uh, to on the internet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and I think the um, the main thing I know that IRC is still kind of used in today is on twitch.tv. Uh, really? Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm Why? Why? Uh, so it's effectively the same thing. You have chat rooms. Um, IRC uh, was able to handle like a sizable amount of people talking on it. And from my understanding, you can connect and talk on the Twitch chat rooms, uh, the Twitch channel things with IRC. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. So so I thought you were saying um, Twitch exclusively uses IRC. Uh, <laughs> like, I, I mean, I, I don't know how the architecture actually works, but I know you can communicate with... so. It's, I think the back end of this might might be actually RC in the back end, but uh, I don't know that for sure. Yeah. Um, I do know I used um, I used IRC to uh, I don't know if anyone remembers when Twitch played the Bob uh, the Bob Ross marathon. Uh, this would be a long time ago. Yeah, I don't think it would have ago. even been called Twitch back then. Oh no no this is still uh, still a Twitch right? Yeah. Um, so they did a marathon and like. The interesting thing about it, like, was it 100,000 people tuned in to watch Bob Ross paint, right? <laughs> and it, I built I built a thing called the um, the Twitch hypometer, right? Because what that would do is things would happen, like, every time without fail when, uh, when uh, Bob Ross touched the canvas for the first time, everyone would say ruined in all caps. <laughs> everyone, right? So... And there were a couple of, like, I guess, memes that would occur at specific times when he did certain things. And uh, the Twitch hypermeter would connect to the chat, um, pull out the words that people were saying, and then kind of group them in time buckets so you can see um, overall what people were actually talking about rather than reading line by line and kind of guessing. Wow. That is, that is fucking hilarious. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, that... Yeah, it was a, a self, like a fun thing, um, which I use, but yeah, it never got widespread or used, so yeah. Now, we've we've not had the opportunity to get 
a developer or program on yet. And I think the audience would be intrigued as to at least get a grasp of what this skill set is and how does it, how does this figure in this day today, particularly as it's becoming more and more prevalent within the white collar and the white collar workforce, but people are sort of starting to call it like that blue collar work. Yeah. So I'm curious as to, for you, what are generally your principles for programming? What are the frameworks that you follow and what uh, what do people typically follow in this space? Hmm. The, the way that I see uh, programming ultimately is it's still problem solving, right? But you're problem solving with a, within a specific context of how do I make the computer do the thing that I want it to do? And I think the, the, the process that at least that I follow to, to do it is the same with uh, a generalized problem solving, which is, all right, uh, first off, what is the problem, right? Um, defining the problem in more detail will help you understand uh, how to solve it. And then the next step is, I guess, breaking down the problem into small and small chunks where it's actually manageable to solve these problems. And then you start And then you keep going from there. And yeah. so the goal, based on what you were saying before as a kid, as you were building all these, these little tools, it sort of goes into your tool chest. And then later on, when you come to these problems, you use those tools to solve the problem. Yeah. So like a lot of stuff that you would, um, I think, what was it? When I, when I was around 12, I decided to switch from Windows to Linux. Okay. Just to, you know, give it a go because it was a hip thing to do back then, like learn about a new operating system. And I think a lot of the problem solving, like, because, I mean, back then Linux was not ready for the desktop. I mean, someone, uh, it's controversial to say, but I think it's still maybe not ready. But a lot of uh, problem solving was like, okay, this is broken. How do I fix it, right? And ultimately, you just, Google, like the, uh, a big, <laughs> a huge part of problems, so, uh, at least in my tool chest, is understanding how to break a problem down into search queries I can put into Google. Yeah. That is like, I would say that's at least 20% of programming or engineering. Do you, do you know right what there. is so funny is as I was doing my research up to this interview, I, um, I went back to some of my favorite YouTube channels that I like to follow and there's a guy, I can't remember his name. I have to find the link for this later, but he has a channel and uh, he's like a former Google developer and he has like a, f- a few like meme funny videos where it's like, I'm going to become a founder. He works for Google still, but he's like, oh, he had one video about becoming a founder for a company mm-hmm. and he made up some ridiculous like company idea and they're like, yeah, all right, we're going to have a hack night. We're going to hack it together. And it's literally him doing, it goes from one screen of like a Google search to the next screen of code and like copy paste and then doing all that and then making small adjustments and then previewing and then making small adjustments and then like a last Google search. And like, and you can sort of see how as a programmer in a way, you just build out this repertoire of structuring things like an architect in a way or a builder. Yeah. And uh it was, the way he did it was so fucking funny. I just wish I remembered the, na- the name of the channel. Yeah. Um, if you think about your toolkit now, and I know you would classify yourself as a full stack developer. There's people who are, are really focused on back end, mm-hmm. really focused on front end or what they call user interface or user design. Mm-hmm. As a, I guess, a full stack generalist, would you say that? Uh, I mean, in some ways, I don't like the term full stack. 
uh, because it kind of implies that the front end and the back end are the only parts of the stack. Yeah. Uh, I think it extends um, beyond that. So, I mean, like, you know, I guess uh, for the building out the code part, sure, front end, back end, but there's more to that. Uh, like I figured, uh, so I discovered um a few, a few years ago Yeah. that the reason why I like programming is it lets me build a product okay. and ship it. Right. So I find that the more interesting part uh-huh. than the actual the actual act of programming itself is figure out what the problem is and well usually it's I have a problem, right? And then I say, cool, how do I fix it? And then it's like the process of, okay, what is the problem exactly? How can I fix it? How should the fix work? And then the writing part of, you know, how do I actually build the tools to solve the problem? Mm-hmm. But the the part where you actually write the code to solve the problem is I'm only I'm only good at it because I've done it a lot. Mm-hmm. But I think I like to solve problems end to end and build products. You you like the whole thing. You yeah. like seeing the whole thing that someone can actually physically use. Yeah. So then if if we're talking about someone who is really a product manager or someone who you know is a developer that seeks the end goal of a product what makes someone good at that do you think uh, as in what makes someone good at building a product building that's a product? useful uh i think it's i think it's useful to have a uh a working understanding of each part of the entire process okay so all the way from i guess uh, like understanding what the problem is, market research, uh, UX is definitely on that list. Yeah. Um, it's often forgotten. Yeah, often often forgotten. <laughs> uh, yeah, like UX, UI, you know, basic parts of design, all the way to how software is written and designed and then built. Um, because I think a understanding of the entire pipeline lets you, I guess, have empathy on why parts of the process might be hard and uh, why, for example, uh, you have so many cases where it's like, oh, so I just want you to add this extra checkbox here. But then your back engineer is like, whoa, that's really hard. And there's like minimal communication on to why that's hard or the whole reason why it's that way is because timeline pressure from upper management caused compromises to be made at that certain point in time, which you're now paying for, which usually goes beyond the scope of... Uh, the product manager, but I feel like a good one kind of understands, well, I guess understands enough of the whole thing uh, to appreciate why some things are the way they are, mm. if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, I, the the tricky thing and for the audience listening, a product manager generally has to deal with developers, the people who are going to sell it, like marketers or salespeople. Mm-hmm. Uh, managers like you know an executive of some kind or the leader and you know anyone else that could be involved in that and so you're trying to manage expectations for the end goal of getting the right product yeah so that that's a bloody tough job yeah it is <laughs> yeah it's that process is hard yeah what what are the i, I think about your products uh, that you've worked on excluding assembly four products mm-hmm. what's been the f- most favorite thing for you to work on? Um, I think it would have to be the cloud architecture at LifeX. Okay. Um, so, Why is that? Uh, so a bit of background. LifeX uh, is smart 
smart multicolor Wi-Fi enabled light bulbs. Mm-hmm. So I've got three here. Oh, nice. Well, there you go, right? <laughs> so uh, for me, it was super interesting because uh, it's the first time I ever had to work with, uh, I guess, firmware because you know, light bulbs aren't very big. And uh, due to uh, the temperature um, that they have to operate at, there's minimal. You can't you can't run a full you can't run a fully fledged operating system on it, right? Yeah. Which uh, so some things have to be designed in certain ways, and that was my first time where I had to uh, properly understand and implement uh, a binary protocol. Um, yeah, because firmware for those listening is like really binary. It's like a like a trigger device. It's like yes or no for everything. Kind of. In it's, a way. Like, it's like it's just very low level. Like um, yeah. So it's like firmware is generally re- uh, referred to like software that runs on a like very small devices or very specific devices. And uh, the other part was the scaling aspect, right? So the architecture that um. Uh, that we built with like a very small team, like we had two and a half, maybe three people. Really? Yeah. And uh, how long ago was this? Were you working there? Uh, I think two thousand and how many? How many years ago? Two thousand thirteen. Wow. Ish. Back yeah. then, that was like when LifeX was like rocketing off. Yeah. Well, uh, I was, was about to. Yeah. So I was uh, when I joined. Uh, I, I had to look it up, but um. I was initially pulled on to uh, to build out the some of the Ruby APIs, uh, but eventually, yeah, just um, led the cloud team, and so we built and designed an architecture that had to scale right. And the initial target was to handle hundred thousand concurrent connections, uh, which is a good amount. And uh, the same, the general same architecture is still used, and I think it powers uh, up to five hundred, like half a million concurrent connections. Yeah. Which is a good amount and has its own scaling problems. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a brilliant product. Although um, I've got an issue now with mine because of uh, we have terrible internet here, mm. and so um, we got rid of we had ADSL. We're at the end of the exchange. Ah, uh, yes. And we had to get uh, like a wireless system, so an Optus wireless system, mm-hmm. and the modem doesn't accept more than four or five devices. Yep, and so. Even with not using the bulbs, our laptops and phones get kicked off randomly because we've got at least we've got a phone and a laptop each. Plus, my partner's got like a big Mac as well. Yeah, it's a fucking nightmare. I, I'm really pissed because I love. Luckily, we found some uh, incandescent bulbs, I think, uh-huh. or something like maybe some LEDs that were, you know, that nice warm yellow. Because yeah. I love like an for an hour at night reading in like that yellow light so I don't yep. get the blue light. Yeah, I miss those lights. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, the, I guess one of the more interesting things I learned at LifeX was uh, understanding how Wi-Fi works. Um, honestly, uh, after <laughs> solving like, you know, debugging, investigating some of the problems, I am surprised that Wi-Fi works at all. Yeah. It's, it's a very hard problem. And uh, I think people should be thankful that uh, some like we, like in Australia actually came up with the initial Wi-Fi standard. I know, and it works the way it does because um, have you ever played a game called Space Team? Uh, no. So the concept is um, uh, you are a a team on a spaceship, and you have to uh, fly a ship 
and survive, right? And the way it works is uh, you have this like randomly generated control panel in front of you, and um, it's all like uh, you know gibberish, like like te technical jargon, right? And um, at the top of the screen, it tells you commands, but the commands may be for you, but they're more likely to be for someone else who's also playing. Wow. So what you have to do is some comes up and you have to say, you know, turn the, uh, turn the, you know, power knob to nine and someone has to then react to it and then do it. Otherwise you die. <laughs> and so eventually, uh, it's the same problem as Wi-Fi is you have a shared communication, which is like audio. And eventually people figure out that the best way to play is you take in turns, like whose turn is it to speak the command? Yeah. Otherwise you talk over each other and you can't work. That's kind of how Wi-Fi Works. works yeah right. which is a miracle really yeah it's um it's fascinating it's it's so amazing that it was created like i feel like so many people take it for granted yeah like it's just uh you know think about how much data you would i i think about how much data i would chew through if it was all uh what do you call it you know just on the network as yeah. opposed to wi-fi um I want to get to some more about hardware, but before we, we finish off about the software side of things, yep. um, I'm curious as to, you know, if there's some newbies, and I'm particularly thinking about my brother who's just started his Masters of Software. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious as to what is the, I guess, the downside of being a programmer or developer? Hmm. <laughs> the downside. Nothing. Uh, I, I would say there's a lot, a lot of downsides, really. Um, I mean, the obvious one is like everyone wants to like when you say you like you work in IT, they just assume that you know about all the problems <laughs> that they're having and expect to solve it. Uh, and people uh, want free shit all the time. Yeah, people want free shit, or they have like, uh, oh, I have this idea for a for an app, and. <laughs> Yeah, I get that a lot. and <laughs> It's like, yeah, I've got ideas too. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, downsides of being a programmer. I think those are pretty big downsides. It's yeah, sort of just that. It's like, you know, if someone was a doctor yeah, and uh, all of a sudden everyone wants to speak to you about their medical issues. Yeah. Oh, you're a doctor. I've got this rash. Can you have a look at it? Yeah. And then like, I mean, yeah. It, and and I, I guess IT is a broad field. Yeah. It's... Yeah, like sizable field and then there's also science. So, yeah, really big fields and people kind of conflate all of them together when you just realistically specialize in a, like a maybe a tiny chunk of it. Yeah. Um, but that's just how it is. And who are the leaders that you respect in this space? Like if you were starting out and there were resources or places that people can go to other than, f you know, following people on GitHub, where would you be um, pushing people what direction? Um, like people who are starting out programming uh, yeah. specifically? Or is it as mm. simple as just tinkering with your own projects and finding out? Uh, so the way I like to learn, um, so uh, I think there's uh, the word kinesthetic, like uh, okay. uh, yeah. learn by doing. Yeah. Uh, so that's, uh, I think the key thing for everyone is to understand their learning style first before they try to, uh, I mean, because if, if you understand how you learn, then you can change your, I guess, learning workflow so you can be good at it, right? For example, uh, I'm bad at taking information by listening. I'm, okay. I'm a reading-based or doing-based kind of learner. So the way I like to learn new things is uh, I, I come up with an idea for something 
that I want or want to solve. And then I just begin trying to build it. <laughs> like uh, the Twitch hypermeter I just talked about, um, that was my attempt at learning Elixir and Phoenix. Okay. Because um, they're, I guess, a pretty significant uh, paradigm shift to, I guess, normal programming. So, yeah, that was just how I learned it. It's like, I have an idea. I'm going to figure out how to do that idea. Because if you make something that you are passionate about and have an interest in, you're more likely to continue doing it rather than building a, I know a uh, a uni assignment that where you make something that's dumb. Oh, it's so fucking dumb. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. So I just hated uni assignments because I mean I have a problem with the way that most education systems work, but yeah. that's that's, that's another side. Yeah, <laughs> something else. I look at what he's doing and I think, oh my god, like think of the money you're spending on this degree and like if you could just borrow it and use that to build stuff like what how much more you could do do you know what i mean yeah i mean like so some of the um uh some of the people i know uh who i guess never did a degree are some of the best engineers of i've ever worked with yeah i feel like uh at least the it field is moving so quickly it's hard for uh, education programs to keep up and keep up to date. Actually, yeah, the main thing at um, at uni was um, version control, right? So the idea <laughs> of like uh, you write code, it changes, and it's, if you want to keep versions of it, um, it's it's a very very critical thing to learn when you're writing code, right? But it wasn't covered when I was doing uni. Really? Yeah. Wow. So like they didn't even talk about having like a Git repository or anything like that uh, well git didn't exist back then <laughs> that's uh yeah how did people used to do that like, uh so we had um uh cvs cvs which i don't even remember what it stands for and then um svn which i also can't remember what it stands for okay uh those were the old school ways of um i guess storing uh version code apart from copying files around wow. which is terrible yeah, so the way what our audience may not realize is that when you're building websites and stuff like that, you want to maintain version, like sort of like when you got a Google Doc. Yeah, you can go back and you can look at all your versions. Yeah, exactly. You want to have that. I we use um, um, GitHub and then like a backup for ours, but um, we've had all sorts of fucking nightmares where people go and change code and um, the server uploads on the dashboard for uh, what do we use Heroku and then all of a sudden the website's down yeah and so and people can't work out what the problem is and that's why you have backup code yeah and then otherwise you just go back right yeah because yeah. <laughs> otherwise your website is down for hours I learned that one the hard way yeah um, <laughs> that's amazing that they didn't teach you that um, you know if you think about technology it's constantly changing languages change mm-hmm. um you know, the languages you probably learn at uni versus the paramount languages now of like Ruby and then things like React and JavaScript. Yeah. They would not have existed maybe seven to 10 years ago. What do you think is never changing for programmers and developers? So, what do you learn a language? Uh, and this applies to like, uh, like normal languages, right? Um, the concepts, they are often common concepts between all languages. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you if you learn enough about uh, one programming language, the concepts tend to apply to other ones, right? Like the same ideas exist, just in a different structure or way, right? So, like you know, uh, languages uh, have verbs, nouns, adjectives yeah. in across most languages. 
So I think that, yeah, so it's still yeah, so a thing that... Coding may have like an integral or a variable and yeah. all these like little elements that make it it. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it's kind of hard to have a programming language when you don't have variables. Uh, like it is hard to have a language where you don't have nouns. Yeah. So it's uh, like those things always, I think, be true. Yeah. Okay. I like that. Um, now, before we jump into talking about A4... Um, you're, I think, a self-confessed uh, gadget geek. Yes. What uh, What are you playing with lately? Uh, lately? Uh, honestly, lately I haven't had time to play with many gadgets, but uh, what's a good example? Well, like, um, what's your go-to area? What's What do you have the the most amount of interest in? Uh, home home automation, I would say. I mean, it's uh-huh. kind of why I joined LifeX uh, a couple of years ago. Um, I remember during that period, I genuinely thought I was going to learn to code and create my own Jarvis. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, what was it? The, um, my first interaction with, I guess, home automation was um, I bought this uh, super dodgy looking uh, adapter uh, where you would screw a light bulb into one end and... Uh, it would sit between the normal light socket and the light bulb. It was okay. big and bulky, but it had a remote, right? <laughs> and being able, like when I first installed it and I was able to turn the light off from my bed, phenomenal. Like <laughs> that itself is amazing because like it's cold. You don't get out of bed to turn the light off. I have a remote, right? Yeah. That was the uh, the initial thing. And then uh, I kind of expanded on to, uh, you know, LifeX lights, obviously, uh, I've got uh, a sensor bow that lets me control my air conditioning remotely and by voice. Uh, That's really cool. So, my, if it's hot out in the day, you can just turn it on. You can just turn it on. You can set rules and all that stuff. Um, the most recent one thing I got was this, uh, this thing called the Soma Smart Blinds. Mm-hmm. So, it's a thing that you can um, install and it would raise and lower your blinds for you. Although, at a very slow speed for me. Um but I can tell Siri to open my blinds and my blinds open, which is kind of neat. Yeah. Uh, not necessary, I think. And uh, I was working on a project uh, where if you would go into the bathroom at like, you know, 3 a.m. in the morning, rather than having to turn the light off, like turn, turn the light on and blind yourself, it would turn the light on at a low brightness so you can, you know, go back to sleep and not be like blinded awake. Yeah. Um, and be motion activated. Um, it, it worked, but... Um, yeah, it's just <laughs> that's so funny. I think my go-to thing has always been like uh, I realized in hindsight now, like a lot of media and sort of automation stuff. Like I, I've uh, my next thing that I really want to get is Alexa and the Apple Home device and start playing around with those mm-hmm. because um, you know I just find the ability to use voice commands for anything fascinating. Yeah. I feel like computing is sort of going in that direction. Yes. Um, and yeah, all sorts of little media-related devices of some kind that I use and then six months later I no longer can use at all. That's uh, so funny. Yeah. Um, now, A4, Assembly 4. Yes. We spoke about this with Lola last time. I think generally the mission is to build products and services to empower sex workers. Yes. So... When we met with Lola, I think she spoke about how the two of you two actually met. It was like at a local hacker night or like a tech meetup. Yeah, it's like a startup kind of event yeah. thing. And uh, you guys came up with sort of project ideas at the time. 
I think all of a sudden Swidder was born because of Foster and Sester, but I'm curious as to what happened before all of that. What were you guys thinking before Swidder came about? So the initial idea was to build a uh, to build a content uh, sorry a client relationship manager. Okay. So effectively, the tools that you know already exist, but specifically tailored for uh, for sex workers. We were doing that in like you know our spare time, and uh, there were a lot of challenges already, like um, uh, not being able to use uh, like we can't have apps on the app store, uh, which made things harder. <laughs> and uh, it was like effectively slow going until Twitter became a thing, and then then that kind of like kickstarted the rest of our work. Yeah, like you guys, um, I'm curious as to the behind the scenes on that. So what happened? It was like you were building or figuring out this idea of the CRM. Yep. And then all of a sudden, Foster says to happen. Kind of. So uh, it was, so we started Twitter about a couple of weeks before Foster says become, uh, became a thing. So what happened was um, we heard through our network that uh, workers is um, their like content on like Instagram, Twitter. Oh, that's right. Uh, Wix and stuff were just being removed. Okay. Um, effectively, there were companies that were preparing to deal with the Foster Sester law, and uh, and we thought like that's crap, and maybe there's a way we can help. Uh, I read uh, about Mastodon, uh, which is a software that we use for Twitter. Somewhere at some point, I can't remember, but I was like, this is. I had I didn't really know enough about it, but I was like, maybe we can use this, right? And uh, I remember we came up with that idea on a Monday. Okay. And by Wednesday, we were live. And I initially, we was like, okay, you know, maybe some people will use it, blah, blah, blah. I put it on a on the smallest uh, server uh, that we could get. Yeah. Um, but like an hour after Lola tweeted about it, it <laughs> the server was straining at the edges already. And yeah. I was like, okay, I better double it. So I took a server down, doubled the capacity, and then an hour later, I was like, I have to double it again. <laughs> and thankfully, it was uh, Easter Easter weekend came up, and I was able to scale out horizontally. And I think we were running around 10 servers at that point. But it effectively just took off like a rocket. What do you mean by... I remember reading that in your article. What do you mean by scaling horizontally? So, scaling vertically is where you make... Uh, you're you're running on one server and you just make that server bigger. Uh, okay, okay. So scaling horizontally is you just have more servers. Yeah, yeah. And just ma- takes the pressure off. Yeah, basically better yeah. for redundancy and all that sort of As stuff. As well, yes, yeah, yeah. So I read that article. It was very interesting. During that rollout, you guys obviously battled with those scaling issues. You got kicked off your content delivery network, which is Cloudflare. Yes, um, which I was surprised to read about. Uh I mean, we, we were also very surprised to find that the, as well, right? The only other network or website that they've kicked off was a neo-Nazi site. Yep. Um, and then you also had to survive a few DDoS attacks. Yes. Uh, out, that out of, was... Out of interest, who do you think made that attack? Oh, we have no idea. I mean... Why, though? Why would, um, What benefit would it be? Uh, I mean, some people do it for fun, I guess. It's like... Uh, a way to assert, hey, I'm having an impact on the world. Honestly, it's we have no idea. No idea. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I found that f- really fascinating. Do you do you think that that's common for something like this, a topic that's really in the media, like um, a website like yours would be targeted? Uh, honestly, though, like websites get 
DDoS all, all the time. time. Yeah. All the time, right? <laughs> so I don't think ours would be any different. Uh, we may have been in target because we were mentioned in the press. Uh, someone might have like an audio, a audiological thing against it. Um, you know, we have no idea. But it happens all the time. Now, what did you learn from this period? What have you uh, learned that you've really taken on board with you now? As in... About the, like this whole, I don't know, this period where you had the scaling issues, you know, all these problems, the infrastructure you're using. I'm curious as to how your mindset has changed from pre that period to now. Uh, I think the main thing is like uh, our reliance, like, yeah, our reliance on US-based companies for our infrastructure, right? So, I mean, we thought Cloudflare would be... Uh, would be supportive of the whole, um, I guess, freedom thing. But I guess the main thing is like, so we, we try to avoid US-based companies for hosting any of our stuff because it's basically a liability for us because, uh, again, it could be like Cloudflare would be kicked off without any notice. And it's also a real like physical risk to our users. Out of interest with Foster and Sister, what do you think will happen there? Do you think it will be repealed eventually? Um, hopefully, yes. Um, but I don't fully understand. Uh, like the the political climate in the US is just crazy right now. Mm. Um, uh, the EFF uh, filed a suit against it, um, but I believe the judge uh, put the case on hold effectively. So really? ultimately, uh, the law. No one really knows the impact of a law until it's actually tested in court. So until then, I think um, no oh, one really nice. knows. Wow. But it's a, it's a shame that it wasn't covered as well as like I guess net neutrality or the uh, the Article Thirteen yeah. uh, in the EU. Um, mostly because like I think honestly the uh, Foster Sessor law was a classic case of policy laundering, um, where with it. You can't be seen voting against a bill called Fight Online Sex Trafficking, <laughs> but ultimately that bill, um, yeah, just puts the internet more at risk and puts the and effectively makes it harder for small companies to start out. Yeah, um, and it's the same with Article Thirteen actually, where um, big companies with more resources are able to deal with it, but small companies are hamstrung by those laws. Yeah, and a lot of this stuff now, a lot of this regulation, I think, um, look, I have shares in companies like Facebook and I know just from a business point of view, a lot of these regulations are going to be to their advantage. A lot of these new regulations like Foster Sestar and the idea of regulating social media platforms 100% benefit the, the, the incumbents because yep. they've got the financial capital to have a compliance team whereas a small exactly. company does not. GDPR yeah. is another good example. Yeah. I mean, GDPR ultimately is, uh, I mean, it's good because it puts the power back into, I guess, users' hands. Like with uh, data being the, uh, the commodity that it is, uh, it is, I think it's a good thing for GDPR to be a thing. Yeah. Um, but like it doesn't make sense for for Europe to pass GDPR, but then introduce Article Thirteen. Like to me, that is counterintuitive. Yeah, people um, can go look up at Article Thirteen. It's it's a bit of a long story. I think Phil DeFranco on YouTube had a good excerpt about it. It's uh, it's nuts. It's effectively um, uh, a copyright filter. So yeah. the idea is that uh, anytime media is uploaded to the internet, 
uh, they want uh, websites to be responsible for, I guess, copyright infringement. Um, no discussion of fair use. Uh, yep. Yeah. And uh, for example, the biggest impact is you know uh, memes where you would take a thing, a screen cap from a show, and then put text on it. That is at risk yeah. ultimately, right? Yeah. Um, but they also there's been talks about submitting the media that's being uploaded to us like a centralized service for them to detect whether or not it's infringement or not and so on right <laughs> and like uh we know that this is dumb like uh, there was a recent thing about someone uh uploaded a video to youtube that had buck right but it was blocked because uh sony for some reason had rights to it even though it's pretty old and in public domain right uh and it was only until the press talked about it or it was it had media attention that they stopped that right wow. it just puts you know, big companies in with more power. Well, it's it's just what happened sort of in that early to mid two thousands period with things like Napster and um, is it LimeWire? Yeah, yeah. All those sort of things. When you make it really hard for people to access stuff, they're going to do things that will ruin your business. Yeah. To get it, so to do that is just stupid. It's yeah. just change your business model. Your business model no longer works. Yeah. Um, that's, I mean, my assessment of it, it was basically drafted by pro-copyright people. Well, the the interesting thing about Foss Assessor as well, right, was 20th Century Fox was a supporter of it. Now, why would a, effectively a media company be, like, I mean, it doesn't make sense for them to have a stake in it until you realize that Foster effectively enables websites to be liable for the content that users post, hmm. right? And for them, that's an entry road into, like, copyright cases and so on and so forth. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I'd never thought about that. There that's, you go. Uh, that's why it's uh, it's a very interesting area. Like, who supported the bill, um, in what context. Uh, and the thing is, like, Foster, like, was it uh, when Backpage got shut down? That was before Foster's sister was passed. Hmm. And it's not like... Um, uh, all that stuff was like uh, illegal in the first place. As far as in, it was illegal. Like sex trafficking is illegal in the first place, but I guess the US definition of sex trafficking is even consenting workers still come under sex trafficking. Mm. Um, but that's like you know, I didn't realize. I, I've not I've not read that bill oh, okay. very deeply, so I didn't know that. Yeah, um, that's interesting. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, the main thing is like just because it's uh legal doesn't make it right yeah and con- like the and the converse is also the same right yeah um yeah what did you learn about the tech side of things because you've gone to mastodon's like a decentralized system right yeah so i'm curious as to what new tools have you created or learnt in this period uh, I think the main thing is like after not being able to use existing uh, hosting platforms I would normally use, uh, we uh, we have to uh, so, so we run a thing called OpenShift, um, okay. uh, OpenShift Origin, which is a, a Red Hat thing. I think they've renamed it recently actually, but it effectively lets us uh, deploy our software, so Twitter and all our stuff, on a cluster of servers. So that if one goes down, they can recover and all that stuff. So normally in other contexts, I would like 
you can have a managed system that does it. Like Google offers Kubernetes, hosted Kubernetes that they'll manage it for you and, and you just worry about deploying. But given that we can't really use uh, US-based companies, um, we have to run our own stuff. Uh, and the it's actually kind of scary how much uh, the world depends on US company technology. Yeah. And the alternatives are pretty scarce. Yeah. Yeah, I've always thought that. It's always really weird how you can't find something locally. And I yeah. just noticed that through the amount of like US dollars we have to pay for a lot of our, um, I guess, administration type products. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, they've definitely got a stranglehold on the industry, that's for sure. Yes. Um, and they're just getting bigger. Yeah, bigger and bigger. Well, that's what happens, I guess, when you when you monopolize a certain space, then it's very hard for anyone to get in. Yeah. Um, so there's three different products with uh, Assembly 4. So you've got Twitter, which is a social media platform, which we covered with Lola. Honey Notes, is it? Yes, although so that's not really being worked on anymore. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then there's Trist. Yes. So the thing I had in my mind is why separate the products and not have it in one unified sort of platform? Uh, I guess um, it would be harder to develop is probably the first reason. Okay. So the software that Twitter runs is not, it's like it's someone else's code base, right? Right. Um, and trying to make change, like we have made changes to it um, for our use cases, um, but the problem that we have now is if we want to update to the newest version, right, we have to kind of reconcile our changes back in and that's difficult. And ultimately, it's a different thing, right? And uh, putting everything in the same software just makes software harder to deal with and reason about. <laughs> yeah. For oh, What's a good example? Uh, what's what's the thing that does a lot of things that does not, <laughs> and doesn't do any of them well? Um I don't know, but I know what you mean. Like you can't have one type of program do one thing and then build another application which requires different software and just pull it all into yeah, that whole like, software. Yeah, so it's like a it's like a Swiss Army knife, right? Like sure it comes in handy, but if you want to use a proper corkscrew, you could have one or a proper knife that's just better for it, like purposely designed for it rather than it kind of does all the things. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. So why why no CRM? Um, like I think we're taking some of the ideas from the CRM and putting them into Trist. But uh-huh. uh, the the initial sell uh, of the of Honey Notes was um the SMS integration, uh, which is difficult because you need an app on the phone, and realistically, it would only be on Android. Hmm. And um, dealing with uh, all that. It's just yeah, it's just harder than originally thought. Uh, we we might get back to that, but right now, yeah, you Trist is our yeah. I mean, it's just me working on it <laughs> for the most part. So and so, tr- yeah. The business model then is, at the moment seems to be ad based. So you get people putting up ads on Trist, and that's sort of what supports development of both. Uh, kind of. So it's a um, it's a, a subscription model. So uh-huh. when you have a so the ads, it's not really ads. It's like um, people when you want to have a profile, uh, you pay for like a certain amount of like features or photos or whatnot. Uh, okay. And um, yeah, that's that's the business model. So not ads. Um, ideally we wouldn't have any ads at all. Um, because yeah. I guess 
uh, the new take that we or that I like the goal that we're trying to do is not to use any sort of uh, yeah like selling data like users data or, or whatnot it's not great right yeah. so we don't use any third party tracking at all so we don't have Google Analytics um, pretty much we're trying to minimize uh, where people's data goes huh. and trying to be like uh, better at um, uh, like being better with people's data hmm. rather than just blindly sharing it with a billion parties when you go to a web website, right? Yeah. And yeah. I was thinking about that. Like, do you offer them as the product or do you offer this as a product? And it seems like as in when you have an ad-based platform, yep. you, they essentially become the product and all that data. And in the environment you're in now, I can sort of see the rationale behind that. Yeah. It's we, not great. Yeah, we like... I think it's one of the things that's. Uh, I mean, when you look at the biggest companies in the world, I mean, Google Google makes their money off advertising, yeah. right? Like most of its yeah, money of 90%. advertising. So does Facebook. Yeah. Um, and I feel like it's a road that it seems like a bad thing to go down. Yeah, it's becoming clearer now that that long term ads based. Yeah system is probably not going to work. Yeah, and it's like it can, it can easily be used for evil. Yeah. Right. Like, uh, look at the um, the way that Facebook, like, there was a thing where uh, rental agencies in the US were using Facebook targeting to discriminate against who they advertise to, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I believe, it is illegal to do that. But Facebook was enabling that, and um, ah, interesting. Yeah, and like, it just yeah, all that stuff can be used for evil, right? Um, I mean, technology is a tool, and any tool can be used for good or yeah. evil. So you guys want to minimize how much a government or another party can back end into your system and and get stuff that you wouldn't want people to find out yeah. because the, one of the biggest issues on a lot of these platforms is there's a widespread belief that on Facebook and Google and uh, you think about WeChat in China that there are back doors for you know the NSA, CIA, etc. to get into the system if they really wanted to and you know there was coverage of that with um. What was that program that that guy who escaped to Russia, Snowden? It was mm-hmm. Prism, I think it was called. And how they oh, yeah. they they actively built, I guess, backdoors for for these services. So I can see from you guys, from your view, because of what's happened with Foster and Sister, you yeah. want to minimise that opportunity as much as possible. Yeah, um, and that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I, th- I think some companies start to realise that data is by default a liability. Yeah, and well, it's only when you can gain insights from that data where it has value, right? Because otherwise, if you store the data, that's a risk for your business, right there. Well, it is now with GDPR. Yep. Yeah, like exactly. in, if anyone who's operating in Europe, it's now actually reported as a liability. Yeah. So there's the potential for you to get fined if you mistreat someone's stuff. Yeah. You know, and which yeah. is which is how it should be ultimately, yeah. right? Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's really interesting how it's sort of progressing in that way. Um, I'm curious as to, you know, initially you and Laura thought that, you know, as soon as you guys were chatting and you met that this product, whatever it was going to be, would be a CRM. Mm-hmm. You've got Trist and Switter, which is your focus now. Where do you see other opportunities right now within the sex worker industry? Because I've always thought, and I said this to Laura last time, this whole space sex work, um, you know, the business of pornography, 
um, all these sort of taboo topics mm-hmm. is very like not backward, but like technically wise. Um, it doesn't come across like the Silicon Valley model, whereas you guys have got this real polished look design-wise. And I, mean, the I wouldn't call uh, the uh, design <laughs> polished because it's just me doing it and well, I have no formal design. There, there's no other company like you guys, in my opinion. Uh, yeah. like, like I look at you guys and you're clearly like a tech business, whereas um, everyone else in the industry sort of just comes across as like to someone who's been in the industry for years. Um so I'm curious as to where you see other opportunities. I mean, it's pretty much um, there's so much to it, right? Like it's it's a it's a huge industry. It's massive. Um, yeah. But uh, the whole reason why it like tech feels behind is because of the stigma behind it, right? Uh, like the uh, the laws, the climate, uh, the stigma makes it makes it hard for or unappealing for companies to turn to the space. Mm-hmm. So there's so many things that can be improved, right? I think the um, uh, the big one ultimately is a payment system. Uh-huh. Yeah, she yeah. said that last time. 100%. Yeah. Like that is a thing that would be good to do because like we're, we're, we're having troubles finding a payment, like a way to, for us to take payments because of the industry, mm. right? And we aren't the only ones Yeah. ultimately. So... That would be, I'd say. If you can solve that, that would be fascinating. Yeah. And how do you do it? Like, do you have to get an AFSL, non-cash payments AFSL? Uh, I mean, it's just so hard and we don't really have the resources to even begin <laughs> looking into it. But uh, it, it was, it would be something that we would like to solve at some point yeah. if we could. What discussion have you guys had about venture capital? I think last time Lola said that. You know, it's a bit of a struggle because the taboo, there had been some VC managers that had reached out or said that they'd like to invest, but they can't yes. because of, you exactly. know, the space. Um, I mean, personally, I would uh, ideally, if we can keep it uh, bootstrapped, that would yep. be ideal um, because uh, I feel that it's when you bring on investors, right? It's possible for your goals and their goals to be mismatched 100% right so by default it in a way a VC their goal yeah is to return the fund yeah and if you get in the way of that yeah the goal the goal is to make money right like but yeah that's and I've just seen like there's been too many companies that have like where that has caused difficulties right and um and ultimately it just complicates a lot of things um, I'd rather not have a complication. Yeah. Um, I mean, if we uh, if we could take take on funding without uh, re- relinquishing control, then maybe. Yeah. But that's uh, yeah. It's how, just how are you guys getting revenue right now? We're not. You're not. So you're I mean, all you're all just working for free and. Uh, yeah, I mean, we have uh, some donations uh, which uh, cover like uh less than half of our infrastructure costs okay. especially for Twitter. yeah um but like we're just working on the side yeah yeah so basically once uh trist is really ramped up then that will probably be the primary revenue source yeah interesting um i'm realizing we're running out of time so i want to jump into some short fast questions okay. for you uh first one is uh what is your morning routine look like <laughs> um so i i am not a morning person <laughs> uh i what's my morning routine it's uh wake up uh you know 
What time do you normally wake up? <laughs> I mean, now it's probably close to like 9.30. Okay. Which is... It's not uh, too bad. It's not too bad. Yeah. Sometimes it's worse. I thought uh, you were going to say like midday. <laughs> oh, it's not It's not that bad. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, uh, I pet my cat, start making some coffee, uh, and then I catch up on and check, you know, metrics and all that stuff while I have my coffee. Um, and then I tend to skip breakfast, which I know I shouldn't do, but... I'm just not hungry in the morning. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And your evening routine, how do you sort of decompress at night? Uh, either watching TV, usually some Twitch, uh, play video games, and then, yeah, that's it. Okay. Uh, best purchase under $200 that you can think of? Wow, that's, for me, it's a very broad question. <laughs> uh, like, can you narrow it down to that category? <laughs> well, let maybe let's okay. just say um, a ga- one of your favorite gadgets under two hundred dollars. Oh my god! And it could be recent, or it could be you know something that you bought years ago. That you're still very fond of. I think I've got. Oh, it is over two hundred dollars. Sadly, oh, come what, on. What is it? Uh so I I bought a thermal imaging camera attachment <laughs> for a f- for my iPhone. Okay. Which is it, which is more than two hundred dollars. Why? But, <laughs> um, I kind of like uh, sensors and stuff. Like it's cool uh, being able okay. to like I guess measure the world. And it's, actually, no, actually, I've got it. Um, buy an infrared thermo- like a infrared thermometer. Yeah, for twenty bucks. Really? Yeah. So it's a thing that like you point at something and tells you how 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 uh, how cold or hot it is, right? Interesting. Um, I use it for cooking the most. Yeah. So it's like. Is this pan hot enough? You point at it, it's like, cool, it's exactly 162 degrees. Wow. I mean, it's not super accurate, but like... You've got an indication. Yeah. And you can be, I guess, slightly more scientific with how hot is this pan or whatnot for cooking, which is useful. Um, Yeah. Interesting. Are you much of a cook? Not really. Uh, (laughs) I'm trying to get back into it because eating out gets expensive, especially when you don't have a, you know, a real job. Yeah. Do you like, do you do freelancing and stuff like that at the moment while you're doing this or? Yeah. So uh, when I have the capacity, I do some consulting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's very interesting. Now, um, favorite movies, podcasts, docos that you've watched of late or listened to of late? Uh, Movies. Ooh, uh, so there's a movie called Anon, which is on Netflix. Yeah, that's a fucking great film. Yeah, uh, it's a very interesting one given the uh, the current climate. Uh, I actually don't really listen to a lot of podcasts because, again, I don't process information uh, auditory <laughs> auditorially. If that's I think yeah, that's very well, <laughs> uh, very well. Um, uh, I mean, I'd also add Black Mirror to that list, even yeah. though it's not a movie. Uh, it's terrifying to watch that show yeah and uh it's the only show i would like to marathon but it's just so stressful i can't (laughs) um but yeah those are that's good i like that um last question for you if you had to gift a book to our audience uh at the end of the year at christmas time yep what would it be and why um i think i would say Homo Deus, okay, uh, which is the sequel to Sapiens, yeah, um, by I can't remember his name Yuval right now. Noah Harari, yeah, yeah. Uh, that book is very interesting, yeah. Uh, as far as like about, uh, I guess humanity, 
why we do some of the things that we do and what our future may look like. Mm. Uh, I reckon that's a, uh, it's, an, it's like an eye, I've learned a lot of things that I just didn't fully understand until some of the parts in that book. Mm. Um, that is, yeah. And I would second and say that people should consider as well Homo Sapiens because that is a brilliant book. Yeah. That the idea of us just believing in stories that really opened a new pathway for me. And the last three to six months, I've read a lot of like books on propaganda and persuasion and stuff like that. It's been very, very interesting. Yeah, it's, I mean, kind of scary when you, I guess, break humanity down into why we do some of the things we do. It's like, yeah, it covers a lot of that. and It's, yeah. it's sort of like you're opening a new pathway in your head. It's exactly. very fascinating. Yeah. So, definitely. Um, yeah. Now, Chendo, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, so, I am Chendo on Twitter. That's yep. at, uh, that's C-H-E-N-D-O. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, same, uh, I, I, I am just the letter J on Twitter. Yep. If you decide to find me on Macedon. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, I have a website, which I don't really use anymore. Okay. Uh, but otherwise, I, effectively, I'm Chendo on everywhere that really matters. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Well, look, um, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you. It's, it's, Good it's to been chat. a pleasure. Cheers. Thanks, mate. Thank you for making it this far. Before you run off, we have a quick ask for you. Subscribe on your podcast app. Subscribing will give you priority access and help your fellow-minded listeners find Uncommon. Or you could also share with a friend. This will go a long way in building our audience, which will help us both get further guests on the show. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube by searching Neural, which is N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E. But until next time, thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Neural Media. Neural Media is an effortless and affordable content production service. We help businesses save time and money by taking away the pain of producing content. If you want to grow your audience through content production, head to neural.com slash media. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E dot com slash media. Create a quote and request a callback from me personally. If you want to learn more about the benefits of growing your audience, download our free series on how to create content at the bottom of neural.com slash media. Listeners to this podcast receive a special 10% discount by using the promo code UNCOMMON.